Well, Merry Christmas, church. The first time I've gotten to say that to you. And we weren't able to make it last week. We joined you on the radio, but this is the first time I've been in the church with all the Christmas stuff. Doesn't it look awesome? So thank you to all of you who helped decorate. It really looks and feels like Christmas. So, uh, yeah. Well, we are going to continue. Zach started off our Advent series last week. He did an awesome job. Uh, Again, I I was glad I got to listen in on the radio, and it was a great service. And so we're going to continue our Advent series this week. If you got our newsletter this week, then you saw the the little lesson. I appreciated, Lynn, your lesson about the Advent candle wreath, because I learned a lot during that. And typically, I will forget information like that as soon as I hear it. But, you know, with the reps, eventually that stuff, it sinks in. And so uh, one of the things I like about Advent is that historically, the church has celebrated Advent, not just the first coming, Advent meaning coming, like Carmen taught us in in Children's Message a couple of weeks ago, not just the first coming of Jesus, but three comings of Jesus. There's the coming of Jesus to the earth at his birth. There's the coming of Jesus to us in Holy Communion presently today. And then there's the future coming of Jesus, his second coming. We remember and celebrate all of those comings of Jesus historically during the season of Advent. And so we're going to start the story off today with the very first story recorded in the Gospel of Luke. So if you want to turn there with me, it was important at the first coming of Jesus, the first work to be done was a work of preparation. God didn't just send Jesus into the world with the world unprepared. He sent a man ahead of Jesus at his first coming to get the nation of Israel prepared for the coming of Jesus. And it's an interesting story, and it makes me wonder, as we think about all of the comings of Jesus, God had to prepare the world for the first coming of Jesus. He didn't just send them in. Surprise, you know, he he prepared, gave them a heads up. He let them know someone is coming. We prepare ourselves for Holy Communion when we receive that. There's a work of preparation that needs to be done. And then for the second coming of Jesus, I don't think it's a coincidence that we just finished a series on the return of Jesus Christ that prepared us for Advent. Church, we're even now, we're preparing for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's a big theme of Advent. That's one of the things that we're doing. And so keep that in mind as we go through the series. There are three comings of Jesus we need to be preparing For all of them. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1. One thing I think is interesting about Luke's story, he adds some some information that you don't find in the other Gospels. It says that the beginning of Luke, Luke being a medical doctor, he's probably a Gentile. He's, He's had some of the other accounts maybe to draw from. And Luke says, after doing a careful examination of all things, I wanted to write a very well-prepared and accurate account 
of the things pertaining to Jesus Christ. And he starts the story off a little differently than the other Gospels. You know, there's been 400 years of God's silence. Think about that, church. The Jewish people, and it's well documented, they consider God to have been silent for 400 years. No word from God through the prophets. No records of visitations from angelic beings. 400 years of God saying nothing. After all of the promises that they've received, great promises given to Abraham, given to David, for 400 years, nothing. Living under foreign captivity. And you could wonder, you know, as the years go on, is God ever going to come through on his promises? That thought, maybe that question being in in the Jewish people's minds and hearts. And so Luke wants to start off the story at the moment where the silence is broken. There, you know, it comes a point in time where God is silent for long periods of time. You wonder if he's listening. You wonder if he's going to do what he promised. And then all of a sudden, things start happening. And this is where Luke picks up the story. We're in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. It's the story of Zechariah. A guy named Zechariah is whom God chooses to break his long silence with. You'll notice I'm not using my reading glasses this morning. Just a little side note, when we were in Oklahoma, I got a large print Bible. So, I'm outwitting Father Time for another few years at least. We're in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. Now, that doesn't mean that they were sinless, church. You understand? What it means is, let's just kind of think about this simply. They believed in God, and they went about their lives behaving as though God were real. Are you with me? Day in, day out, they believed in God. They were uh, living their life and acting as though that were true. Day in and day out, they were trying to get it right. Are you with me? Many of you in this room are just like that. These were not special people. They were not extraordinary. The Bible doesn't record that they ever did anything great. They were getting up every day, they were eating breakfast, they were going to work, and they got up and did it again the next day. Are you with me? They believed in God, and they were living their lives in such a way as though they were trying to get it right with him. Verse 7. But in spite of that, in spite of the fact they were really trying to get it right, they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old, the text said. Now, just to kind of set the stage in the, in the following chapters, 
The Bible repeats that fact three times. They were very old. Amen, right? They were childless and they were very old, which would have been a problem at this time in history. Not only, as you're probably aware of, was it a disgrace for a couple to be childless if they were Jewish, but that was also an important retirement plan for people in this time frame. So this would have not only been a disgrace, it would have been a real problem that they would have had to learn to live with. The text says that they were good people trying to get it right, but they were living with, they'd probably learned to live with the fact they were never going to have kids. Verse 8. Now, I don't know what very old means. Uh, No one who comments on these chapters know what it means, but by the time that they actually wound up getting pregnant and having a boy, if they would have lived today, people would have been saying, they hadn't ought to be having kids. We don't know how old they are, but they, the Bible emphasizes it three times, they were really old. So <clears throat> God's going to do something very improbable here. Verse 8, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. That would have been a pretty good opportunity. He was chosen by Lot. You and I know that wasn't by accident, but whenever he was chosen by Lot, he probably thought, oh man, I'm I'm lucky. I get to be one of the guys who gets to go and do this very special thing for someone who's in my profession. You and I know it was a divine appointment. As far as Zechariah is concerned, he's just gotten kind of lucky to have this special honor. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. This would have been normal, standard operating procedure. Faithful people were simply showing up, being faithful, and doing what people had always done. It was not a special day. Until verse 11 happens. God breaks the silence. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear, which is what always happens when an angel shows up. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord, their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, that's a quote Luke is quoting from the last book of the Bible, the last book from which God had spoken. And so Luke is sending us the signal God is breaking the long-awaited silence with this angelic visitation. 
And the angel says to him, he says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Let me ask you a question. Being very old in age, whatever that means, how long do you think it had been since Zechariah and Elizabeth had prayed for a son or a daughter? Church, I'd be willing to bet you a dollar to a hole in a donut. It had been a good 20 or 30 years since they had prayed that prayer. I'd be willing to bet you anything They had buried that hope a long time ago. They just fully expected, well, I guess that's just never going to happen to us. God's not going to answer that prayer. And they had learned to live with the disappointment. They had learned to live with the circumstances, the cards that they had dealt. They had gotten used to people wondering what was wrong with them because they weren't able to have kids. They had gotten used to all of that. And they'd settled into normal. And here this angel shows up and brings all of this up from 20 or 30 years ago. Maybe we can understand Zechariah's response. Here it is, verse 18. This angel has just shown up, made this big announcement. Zechariah has probably lost control of his bodily functions. Look at his response. Zechariah asked the angel, yeah, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. So are you sure you got the right guy? And look at what the angel says. I'm going to be a little interpretive here. The angel says, dude, I'm Gabriel. I hang out in God's living room. And you need a sign. Something about this is not good enough for you. He says, I'm Gabriel. I come in and out of the presence of God. And the angel is actually a little mad because Zechariah doesn't believe him. Usually, after 400 years, no angel, an angel shows up. People are just going to accept this guy has something to say and I can count on it. Zechariah is not so sure. He's that old. And quite frankly, I suspect that hope that he and his wife lived with for 10, 20 years. The pain of the disappointment. Living with unrealized expectations. Having buried all of that and learned to live with the the hand that they were dealt. (sighs) Do you think he really wanted all of that drug up again? You know, living with unmet expectations and unrealized hope can be painful, can it? The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And I can imagine poor Elizabeth 
her deepest hopes and dreams, coming to terms with the fact it's never going to happen. And even Zechariah thinking, this is hard enough for me. I can't imagine how it's going to be if I have to tell Elizabeth. Are you sure? Look what the angel says. It says, I stand in the presence of God, and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. You can imagine the angel's angry because he's displeased with Zechariah's response. And this is what happens if we're not careful. Zechariah and his wife prayed that prayer probably day after day after day. They probably really believed in their spirit. They had received a yes from God. You know, they really believed when they prayed that prayer, I believe God's going to do this for us. I believe God's going to answer my prayer. And God probably did say, confirm that for them. You are going to have a son. But the time frame for which God is going to answer that prayer was way longer than they expected it was 30 years after the fact that God remembered that prayer, even though Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't. God remembered it. And when the day came through, there was probably some cynicism that had built up in Zechariah's heart. The angel says, because you didn't believe. Church, that's what cynicism is. In the period of asking God for things and believing God for things, and really believing and laying hold of a promise that you believe is going to come through, many times when that prayer isn't answered, and things don't turn out exactly like we expected them to, many times completely different, in that time frame between waiting and believing and actually receiving, many times cynicism will creep in. And it affects how we relate to God. Cynicism is kind of like an unbelief that says, I'm going to protect myself from the hope and expectancy that I don't see happening. I don't see my prayers being heard. I don't see an answer anywhere on the horizon. And so I'm going to protect myself from the pain of disappointment by becoming cynical. You know, that cynicism that we develop to protect ourselves and not only affects our relationship with God, it spills over onto relationships with one another. We no longer choose to believe the best about other people anymore. Right? We no longer choose to believe that people are functioning from the best motives. And so that cynicism that we develop to protect ourselves, it only affects our relationship with God. It affects our relationship with one another. And that is a very tempting thing when we're in a period of waiting and living with unrealized expectation. Think about this with Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. God just broke 400 years of silence. They had their baby. Some amazing thing happens, things happened around that occasion. But then, it's probably another 30 years 
before the things promised about their son came true, and I would be willing to bet you anything, Zechariah and Elizabeth probably weren't even around to witness it. They were probably long gone by the time John started, even started his ministry. You know, God did this amazing thing. He made this amazing promise, and it, it came true. <clears throat> you think about it, they never got grandchildren, did they? John the Baptist never got married. They never got to enjoy grand, grandchildren. And let's just be honest, okay? Again, I'm going to be a little interpretive here, but John the Baptist was a little weird. He probably took a Nazarite vow is what the text is indicating, so he never got a haircut, he wore weird clothes, and he ate a steady diet of bugs. Oh, and he lived in the wilderness. And uh, by the way, his preaching was very offensive. And it wasn't just that he offended some people, he tended to offend the important people. And so could you imagine some of the things that you would have heard people say about your son like that? I guarantee you there would have been people saying things like, John, you might want to have your boy get a haircut. And do you know he's eating bugs out there in the wilderness? And he's making people mad. I guarantee you they would have had to listen to stuff like that. But the Bible said he was going to be great. Great in the eyes of God doesn't always mean great in the eyes of people. Amen? And so even then, they probably never got to see that promise come to pass. They received the promise. They prayed for it. God delivered. They probably never even got to see the results. And even if they had, it wouldn't have been as awesome as it sounds. They would have had to listen to a lot of junk. That's reality, isn't it, church? And cynicism wants to ride in on all of those circumstances. And guess what? Cynicism will find fertile ground in your heart and my heart. Amen? Church, as we prepare for communion this morning, let's keep that in mind. As we come to uh, receive the broken body and blood of our Lord Jesus, as he comes to us in communion, let's consider that. Have you become cynical? Sometimes Christmas is the perfect season to express and embrace cynicism. Cynical about our family members. Cynical about people in our community. Cynical about people in our church. Let's just take a moment and pause and ask God to cleanse our hearts of cynicism, which is a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism designed to protect us from being disappointed, living with unrealized expectations, turning away hoping for good things, both from our church, from our community, from other people. Has hope grown cold in your heart because of cynicism? Have you come to where you really don't expect good things from other people, you expect the worst? Father, I just pray that as we come to receive communion this morning, 
which is your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. As we come to receive that, we ask you to cleanse our hearts of cynicism. We want to make the choice to embrace hope, to believe good things about the others around us. Even if we don't see it, we're going to choose to believe it. There's good in you. We expect God's best from you. And we're willing to wait for it, believing that God will do it. As we pray and ask and believe, just show up. Just show up. Trying to get it right and choosing to believe God is at work in amazing ways. In my church, in my city, in the people around me, I'm going to choose to believe that. And so, Holy Spirit, thank you. We believe you're present. We believe your grace is available to us in communion to empower us and energize us in new and fresh ways. To choose to believe. You know, God did something very improbable with Zechariah and Elizabeth. It wasn't impossible because he had done it before. Zechariah and Elizabeth knew that, the stories. It was improbable. It wasn't impossible. You're the God of the improbable and the God of the impossible. Still today. So, Father, thank you that you re-energize those truths in us as we take communion this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, join with me.